Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. We have almost our full 90 minutes in this episode still to go, and we are looking forward to your interaction. Maybe it's not a question you have. Maybe it's a suggested topic for a future episode. We covet your input and would really like to hear what topics you feel we should be discussing in order to keep this program as relevant and practical as possible. Now, before we jump back into the material the pastor was covering last week as we wrapped up uh, that last episode, we have some questions that have come in from out the from throughout the Caribbean. The first one comes from Trinidad. Pastor, it says, why do Catholics support the LGBTQ community and open their arms wide to them? and welcome them, and make them feel comfortable in their lifestyle. And attached with that question is a screenshot and a news article from CNC3TV, and the headline is, Pope Says Homosexuality Not a Crime. Pope Francis criticized laws that criminalize homosexuality as unjust, saying God loves all his children just as they are, and called on Catholic bishops who support the laws to welcome LGBTQ people into the church. Pastor, what's your thoughts? Well, I would say, Nathan, that nothing the Catholic Church does ever surprises me. Um, The Catholic Church has been a chameleon. Uh, He's been able to adjust to every every movement. Um, It tries to embrace, uh, even today, all religions to bring it under the umbrella of Catholicism. So I'm not surprised that um, they would try to embrace now the uh, LGBTQ uh, group. Um, this is just the modus operandi of the Catholic Church. Remember that it brought the heathens into the Catholic Church um, when Constantine um, made religion, Christianity, the religion of the state. And it took a lot of the pagan practices that were done by pagans so as to normalize those activities within the church. And a lot of what we have today in the church, um, a lot of these celebration of certain days, uh, certainly has um, have within them uh, hedonistic origins. 
But look, the Catholic Church is the bastion, in my judgment, of apostate Christianity. Um, I think it's the fountain head of a lot of falsehood and numerous errors, including purgatory, myriolatry, uh, transubstantiation, praying for saints, uh, indulgences, adoration of relics, saying the rosary, auricular confession, the so-called infallibility of the Pope, salvation, uh, two works, uh, the seven sacraments when the Bible only acknowledges two, the addition of the Apocrypha to the Bible, um, uh, putting uh, papal bulls and papal authority, uh, pope authority above above scripture, and of course infant baptism, it embraces evolution. Uh, it talks about apostolic succession, uh, a whole host of things that the Catholic Church is, is is currently guilty of introducing into the Christian faith, and now this is just the latest fad um, that it is now um, doing. Behind it all, Nathan, is the false concept of love. As you will notice that the Pope says that God loves everybody, and um, because God loves everybody means the, the church must embrace every, every, everybody. I, and I think that one of the big errors uh, today is a misunderstanding of, of Christian love and divine love. Uh, God's love is regulated by His holiness, and that's the chief um, regulatory attribute of God is holiness and um, his love is holy love so it's a mistake to just use and bandy the idea that God loves everybody as an excuse for tolerating every form of, of sin under heaven um, God loves everybody but God does not accept everybody God only accepts people who repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ so it's a, it's a um, if you're not, if you're using the word in a very broad umbrella term, love, without understanding that love, um, God loves the sinner, but God doesn't love the sin. And to think that God, because God loves, he means he accepts everybody as they are, that's not true. And again, the Catholic Church gives the idea that people are born this way. People are not born this way. These are things that happen through uh, behavior, that happen through practice. What happens in a lot of cases, it starts very early. When they were very young, they were either abused, sexually abused, either by mommy or daddy, daddy or by some uncle or some friend, etc., etc. And um, what happens, it becomes a pattern. And after pattern, that which is, is, is wired into the brain, uh, actually competes with what is natural until it comes to a point where you actually think it's natural. That's the way the brain operates. You can actually reshape the brain. And I think that's what's happening with people. But uh, it doesn't surprise me that the Catholic Church would do this. What it has done, however, it puts the remnant church, which stands for biblical truth and stands in the scripture, in a difficult position when it takes a stand against these movements, because people always throw it out to you, but how come the Catholic Church or this other church uh, are endorsing these type of things, but you guys are against it? So it creates a problem for those churches who are trying to stand for the truth. But um, I just think the Pope is a religious man, but I doubt he's a really born-again uh, believer and um, I just think he's operating purely on the basis of instinct, and perhaps because he's given this infallible power, uh, he's not governed by Scripture as the authority by which he d decide on moral principles. Remember that the Catholic Church puts tradition and it puts the Pope's infallibility on par with Scripture. So it's not just the Scripture the Catholics look to. It's tradition, it's the Pope, 
and the scripture. And in most cases, the Pope's authority thumps the scripture. So when he endorses this, like he endorses evolution, the church accepts it because he's supposed to be the head. What should I do if I'm in a church and the pastor, it's not a Catholic church, but the pastor starts to endorse these ideas, whether it's woke ideas or whether it's evolution? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I um, had a statistic recently where it was, I think I mentioned in church, I think uh, 88% of the, the politicians in the American um, Congress claim to be Christians. I, that's the most ludicrous thing I ever, I ever read in my entire life. But again, that happens because most of those people belong to the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church um, can have people within it as members who support gay, who support lesbians, who support transgender, who supports abortion, and then, then, then there's no discipline. There are no consequences. Uh, and I think that is one of the, 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 the great dangers of having uh, people able to um, take stands on that are contrary to Scripture, but yet the Church closes its eye to, to these offenses and continues to accept them as normal members. Uh, I think when a person begins to realize that the Church drifts away from the Bible, the proper thing to do really is to move away from that ministry and get under song Bible preaching, because once the Church begins to go away from Scripture, you can't stop. Uh, the, the degree of its apostasy. If it if it fails on one particular thing, it'll fail on another, and before you know it, it begins to operate without the Bible. There's a church in Freeman's Village okay. that I learned about. Uh, the guy, I understand, he's a, I think he's from Africa. I understand, quite frankly, that um, from my understanding uh, of his situation, he no longer accepts the Bible as the infallible Word of God. And I asked the person who used to go to his church, but then what does he preach? He pretty much preached what he wants to preach. And I mm-hmm. said, so are you still staying there? People still staying there? And apparently the, he's lost a lot of his members, but there's still a lot of people who go, go to hear him. And I, th- I can't figure out why when a man says he no longer believes the Bible and he's just having a direct message from God rather than going to Scripture, why would anybody stay within that kind of a church? Um, but again, I understand at one time he was very, very solid in the Scriptures. People um, came to the church because of that. But now he's apostatized in the faith and he's gone further and further. Those people have a sense of loyalty to that man which their loyalty must first be to Scripture and to God, not to a man. And their loyalty to a man must always rest in the fact that that man is loyal to the Scripture. So when he deviates from the Scripture, the proper thing to do, first of all, is to confront him on the matter, to be very, very sure it's not hearsay. Do you have objective evidence that what he's doing, what what's being said is correct? And then um, if he doesn't make a move in terms of repentance and acknowledgement of that, the thing to do is to move out of that ministry, and uh, because you can't you can't change that situation, it just becomes worse. And you should not stay in a state where the apostasy is. The Bible says to come out from among them and be separate. And it warns us that when a person deviates from the tradition, and the word tradition used in the uh, Pauline writings refers to the teachings that the apostles gave. When they go away from those 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 teachings, you're told to separate from them, uh, have nothing to do with them. And uh, that's exactly what's needed today. But I can't figure out why people want to stay in a church where man no longer believes the Word. What's the point of being in a church where the Word of God is not central? Do you have a question? It could relate to what's been discussed so far tonight. It could be completely unrelated. 
Is it about what the Bible says or doesn't say? Why it says something? Maybe it's just about life, what the meaning of life is. Whatever your question is, we would love to hear it. You can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Nathan, I just, you know, I quoted this before, and I think it's one of the... I'll probably have to memorize this to keep it because it's very, very true. Um, 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 Salvation Army General Booth, it's like 1901, when, well, you know, uh, he said that, um, you know, he never claimed to be a prophet, but he could see what the trend was way back in 19, uh, um, late 18th century, early 19th century. And remember that one of his great quotations is this, that we will have a gospel without repentance, a religion without regeneration, and we preaching heaven without hell. This is where we are today. And uh, he saw that in the 19, 1901. At that stage, he could see what was going to happen. And over look where we are right now, we're in that same current position where there's a lot of religion, but not genuine biblical spirituality. And um, I, I just am amazed what insight he had uh, in that connection, but that's where we are today. You were mentioning that time, and so we're talking 115, 120 years later. And I was just thinking, what if you were to go that same time period into the future, if the rapture doesn't happen first, which I'm pretty confident <laughs> it will, but none of us know for sure. But the rate at which the apostasy, even in my adult lifetime, just over the last couple of decades, how things seem to be snowballing out of control. For the person who's saying, Pastor, I agree, things are going way out of control, and it's very discouraging. I just kind of want to give up. What advice do you have? Well, look, the, the answer, uh, the disciples asked Jesus a question. Um, and Jesus turned to them. I remember that he had said to them, except you eat my body and drink my flesh, uh, my blood, uh, you could not marry disciples. And they were offended. Of course, they took that fairly literal. And uh, when people turned away from him, you remember the disciples, uh, Jesus turned to the disciples and said, um, will you also go away? And you remember the question they asked? Lord, to whom shall we go? Hmm. There's no one else to turn to. Uh, Christ is our hope. Christ is our anchor. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our Redeemer. And Christ is our Sustainer. And when we see the time in which we're living and we see this general falling away in apostasy, it is nothing to be terrified about or nothing to be, um, well, it obviously would upset us, but it's nothing to be surprised about either. The Bible has made it very, very clear that this was coming. And it, it doesn't hide the truth from us. It tells us very clearly this was going to happen. And now it's happening in our current age. And this is more a confirmation of the validity and the uh, the uh, infallibility of Scripture than the fact that it's a failure when it comes to Scripture. It just confirms that uh, what our Lord said would happen and Paul said would happen is now coming to pass. So that confirms and validates the Scripture and should ground our faith more than just um, what would happen today if we saw that there was this massive pouring into the kingdom, everything was going to turn like a, a utopian society. Now we would get, get worried because this is not what the Bible prophesied, mm -hmm. because we're in the final phase, yeah. uh, final phase, and it warns us that there'd be a great falling away 
before the return of our Lord. But didn't Paul think that he was in the final phase? Of course, uh, because we believe in the imminent return of Christ, uh, and that is that's one of the great things of the believer, that uh, the promise is that the Lord is going to return, but we don't know when he's going to return. So that should be an incentive to believe it, to watch and pray. That has always been the incentive. So Paul thought that would happen. Um, all the New Testament writers thought about it. That's why we believe in what is called the eminency of the Lord's return. So, uh, But it's that expectation of the Lord's return uh, that's what keeps people on their P's and Q's. Every man that has this hope does what? Purify himself, so it keeps you on your on your on your um, p's and q's, and it keeps you to be watchful as a believer. Thank you to the individual who sent in that first question. This next one, Pastor, is a TikTok video that was sent in, and it is entitled "Facts About Organized Religion." It's only a minute long, so I'm going to play the audio for it, and then get your take. John chapter eight, verse thirty-two. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Your church denomination is a false religion. John Smith created the Baptist religion in 1608. Charles Parham created the Pentecostal religion in 1901. Joseph Smith created the Mormons religion in 1830. Charles T. Russell created the Jehovah Witness religion in 1872. William Miller created the Seventh-day Adventist religion in 1863. They're all man-made religions. Acts chapter 5 verse 29. We are to obey God rather than man. Ask yourself this question. How is it that in our neighborhoods, there can be four churches on one block? In 20 years, nothing in the area gets better because God's not in them. Acts chapter 7, verse 48. How be it the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. You have been deceived. True religion is realignment with nature and the laws that govern the cosmos, which is simplicity and compassion. That's true religion. Yeah, I, I think I responded to this same question some time ago, but it's worth um, perhaps mention it again. Uh, look, he has pointed out that there are different movements, including the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, uh, Pentecostal, and Baptists, and he gives a particular date when these were started. For example, he mentioned John Smith. Yeah. John Smith didn't start the Baptist movement. John Smith started the Baptist movement in England and moved to America. But the Anabaptists existed long before John Smith existed. So he is clearly not right in terms of understanding the origin of the Baptist Church. The Baptist Church has come out of the Anabaptist movement. Okay, so it was never a denomination. And, and by the way, Baptists didn't give themselves that name. They were given the name Baptist because they're baptized. Right? So it's not something that they, they took to themselves. Um, the Pentecostal would, would, would power them in 1901. Uh, again, that came about as a result of the church's seeming to be becoming merely intellectual, uh, dry bone, and he felt there was some kind for a need for some kind of revival, so he started pushing the home out of the Holy Spirit. This was a a stage in, in, in church where the, the re-emphasis, of course, he, he went too far in that regard. We know about Joseph Smith and the, and the, and the Mormons, and we also know about uh, Charles C. Russell, etc. All of those men started the religion uh, because they became dissatisfied with the religion of the time, and they started a religion that they were more in cahoots with. For example, we know that Russell was offended by hell. He couldn't believe there was a thing called eternal hell. So he came up with a religion where there was no hell would end up in annihilation. Uh, we know also that uh, Joseph Smith believed in polygamy, and he was a polygamist. And of course, the um, Bible is very, very clear in the New Testament that one man, one woman. So he started his religion um, 
pretty much about wrong polygamy. And the Seventh-day Adventists was, uh, came out of the Millerite movement, which was the Second Advent movement, that the Lord was going to return. They made prophecies that did not come true. Miller abandoned it. And then, of course, um, those that were disillusioned finally got an answer when one of the guys called Hiram had a vision that uh, the Lord was coming back. He didn't come back to earth. He went to the Holy of Holies um, in, I think, 1843 or something, 1839, around that time, etc., etc. So that solved the problem. But... To, to make the charge that all religions are false because they carry these different type of labels. And then you notice he quoted Acts chapter 7, verse 48. Could you read that? Uh, read from verse 45 to 48. Acts chapter 7, let me just scroll down to verse 45. It says, Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out, before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him an house. Verse 48, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth in temples, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is my place of my rest? Uh, verse 50. That, that's good. I just want to point out that here is the abuse of Scripture, taking a passage out of context, not even understanding the context. The very argument he's using is contradicted in the text itself. His argument is this. Uh, you can't, if you build a church or you build a house, God is not going to be in the house, so therefore it's false religion. But this contradicts the very thing here because um, this is about uh, Stephen giving his testimony. Uh, that David wanted to build a house for God, a temple for God, but because David's hand was, was blood, he was a warrior, God said you can't do it, but uh, t- um, his son would do it, Solomon. Solomon turned around and, and built the, 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 uh, the, the temple. And the argument was that God told him, look, you know, what house would you build me? Uh, I don't dwell in houses, etc. But, of course, what it means is that God cannot be contained within a box, basically. Because in the very passage in, in Chronicles, when Sol- after Solomon had built the temple, God came down in his glory and entered the temple, and it was under the Shekinah glory, under the, uh, the, the mercy seat. Uh, so it's actually the, the, he's contradicting himself. He's really apparently doesn't know scripture, uh, but he's using a passive scripture to, uh, to to deny something what's actually happened. So even though God told him he can't contain me within a, a temple, yet God came down when the temple was built and dwelt in the temple, uh, etc. So so uh, that that uh, argument needs to be smashed. The idea that uh, a, a church. If it's built today, God is not in the church. Well, of course, God is not in the church. God is in the people. But when people meet in the church, the Bible says what? Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. Again, Shoji clearly doesn't understand Scripture on these matters. The church is not the building. The church is just the instrument that the church uses to facilitate its ministry. Uh, But God dwells in the people, and when the people are in the church, God says, I'll be there in the present. Also in uh, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said what? And lo, I will be with you always unto the end. So he will be there. Wherever God's people are, he's going to be there. But he's not contained or confined to it. In other words, he's not in Grace Baptist Church tonight. He's not in any in in church. He doesn't dwell in churches. We dwell in his people. But where his people go, he's there in the presence. Okay? That's the idea that that, that needs to be. The other thing is, uh, Nathan, that um, 
He says that uh, true religion is to realign with nature and the laws of nature uh, given in the cosmos. Clearly, this man's a naturalist. Mm. He's a materialist. He doesn't uh, understand uh, biblical truth. And he's, he might be a new ager as well. That's putting so much emphasis on um, realigning with nature and nature's law. And then he defined these laws as simplicity and compassion. So if you are a simple person and you live a simple life and you're compassionate, you've aligned yourself with the laws of the universe and you have what you call genuine spirituality. If you look at James chapter 1, 27. James chapter 1 and verse number 27 says... Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Yeah, true religion consists of two things, holiness and a life of love, basically. That's what he's talking about here. And that life of love is demonstrated in the actual meeting the practical needs of people. So you visit the fatherless, the widows, etc., etc. So he's talking about um, uh, Christian compassion and dealing with people. That's, that's authentic. And then keeping yourself unspotted, that is living a holy life. That is what really constitutes um, true religion, holiness and, and compassionate, uh, com- compassion and love. So... Um, I just think that the person... And by the way, I thought he was very, very cocky. Uh, I saw the, the video, and he seemed to be smiling and shaking his head as though uh, he has finally found uh, something that is uh, unusual. He's saying something great. Uh, and I just thought he was very, very facetious in what he was saying and very, very arrogant in what he was saying. The other thing is this. The other verse that he quoted, Nathan, is John chapter 8, verse 33. John eight thirty-three reads as follows... They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Yeah, and then he said that if his son should say, uh, you should know the truth, the truth should set, should set you free. Now remember that the truth that our Lord is talking about is the truth about himself. Right. And true religion started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God gave a promise to Adam and Eve, the Messiah is coming. That true religion was then traced to Abraham, where Abraham would have a seed that the Messiah would come. That was then traced to Isaac. And from Isaac, it went to Jacob. And from Jacob, it went to Judah. And from Judah, it went from David. And from David, we find in the New Testament, it ends up with Mary and Joseph until Jesus was born. So true religion starts with the promise of the Messiah, that the Messiah is coming to redeem uh, humanity. And of course, when the Messiah came, he came to deal with two main problems. The problem of human sin and the need for man to have genuine righteousness. And the way those two issues were dealt with is in the death of our our Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and his burial. As a result of that, God now offers a salvation where we can have freedom from sin, we can have victory over sin, and we can have the righteousness that we need because the Bible says God imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. So he not only takes our sin and deal with the sin, but he also gives us the righteousness that we need. Because it's one thing to have your sins forgiven. It's another thing to be in a state of righteousness that God can deal with you. So even though your sins may be forgiven and that righteousness is not imputed to your account, you still don't have a relationship. So true religion is found in Jesus Christ and um, 
Uh, it doesn't matter, for example, there are people within the Pentecostal Church that have found Jesus Christ as Savior. There are people within the Baptist Church that have found Jesus Christ as Savior. There are people within the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church, that have found Jesus Christ. That is what true religion is. It's about Jesus Christ and his redemptive power in saving us from our sins and clothing us in his righteousness. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. Currently at the Radio Lighthouse studio and across the Eastern Caribbean, we have a time of 7.59. I want to add, Nathan, because even though I made the point that the church is the people, uh, you need a place of worship. Even within the New Testament, you'll read in the Old, Old Testament, it's all about the, ch- the church in, in the person's house. So there was always need, the, p- the church was always meeting in some kind of a facility. In our modern times, to accommodate 300, 400, 60 people, you can't accommodate in a, in a, in a, in a, a person's house. You need a building and a structure. And that's where the building comes in. It's an instrument that facilitates ministry to allow people to be there to come under the song of the gospel. So uh, that's why you have the church building. But there's no... Uh, I know that we put Grace Baptist Church, and uh, people would, would probably think that that's in the... No, but the church really is the people who come into the building. The building is just a means to a greater end. Pastor, we have a caller here from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello? Yes, can you please go uh, turn your radio down, if you could, please, and okay. go ahead with your question. Uh, uh, Pastor Dr. Murphy, I, I have a passage of Scripture that I have a difficulty in understanding. It is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16, 17, 18, and 19, with great, uh, most emphasis upon um, verse 19. Okay, uh, 16 to 19? Uh, let me see if I can answer that. All right, let me, let me read those, and then we will give Pastor a chance to explain. Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we were made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And verse 19 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Well, look, uh, that particular passage is uh, emphasizing two things. First of all, uh, Peter is saying in that passage that at the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, it was at the Mount of Transfiguration where Christ's glory showed to his humanity. You remember the occasion where um, Peter and um, uh, Elijah, was it? I believe so. Yeah, the the two of them met uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, and this, the disciples, the three disciples went, and then there came Elijah and Moses talking about his death. And in that moment, uh, they got a taste of the future kingdom. 
when they saw the glorious uh, appearance of Christ in terms of his deity thrown to his humanity in such brightness that it was almost like the sun. Uh, Peter's saying um, in that particular passage that uh, he didn't follow devised. In other words, he's not one that followed fables. He had the experience of being there to have this great spiritual encounter where he saw the glorified Christ in a way that uh, demonstrated his, his true person and who he really is. Uh, so that was given to authenticate the deity of Christ and the, the glory of Christ. And that uh, was a testimony because God said, this is my beloved son here. Remember that the disciples said, Lord, it's, it's good that we be here. Let us make a t- one tent for Moses and one tent for Elijah. Remember, Moses represented what? The law. The, uh, Elijah represented what? The prophets. They want to put the law and the prophets on the same level as the Lord, basically. And he said, no, uh, this is my beloved son. In other words, he's elevated above anyone else, whether it be Moses or Elijah. But then Peter says something very interesting. He said, even though I had the experience that I had this great encounter of the transfiguration, and I can tell you, I didn't follow fable. I was there. I saw it. He said, we have a more excellent uh, testimony, which is prophecy. In other words, he's referring now that even my experience does not exceed the prophecy of Scripture. The Word of God, in other words, is a greater testimony even than my experience. I had this experience, and I know I didn't follow a fable, but I got something even greater than that. What I got? The prophecy. I got the Word of God to let me know I did not follow um, 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 uh, myth or uh, cunningly. cunning um, whatever term that is used there in that particular passage. Cunningly devised fables. fables. So he's just talking about the certainty of knowing that who Christ is and also the certainty of the Scripture that vindicates that the faith that he's following is not fable and is not um, myth. That's the evidence. So they got the, the experience of the transfiguration that he can verify empirically, but greater than that is the witness and the testimony of prophecy. That's the argument he's using in that passage. Thank you very much for that call, Brother Terry. We appreciate it. And may God give you a blessed evening as you continue to listen to the Radio Lighthouse. No matter where you're listening from, we are thankful that you are participating in the program by listening. But we also would look forward to your interaction by sending in your questions. You can call. The phone line is now open and available. And you can ask your question live on the air by calling 268 462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. I wanted to um, also add something to what I just said. Um, If you go to Luke chapter 16, don't turn there, Luke chapter 16, when you've got the case with Lazarus and you've got uh, what you call Divies of the rich man. Right. You remember that um, the rich man pleading from Hades where he's tormented. Yeah. And he's saying, look, you know, if you could send somebody from the grave back to my brothers and my sisters and tell them not to come to this place of torment, they would listen. Hey, you remember what they're told? No, they won't. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, yeah. neither will. In other words, the Word of God is the final authority. If you can't believe the Word, though somebody rise from the dead, you won't be, you won't be able to believe either because it's the Word of God that generates faith. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What I'm saying to you is you must understand that the biblical authority carries more weight even than your experience. That's the point that is being made by Peter. That's a very profound truth that I think we need to come back to today because to what is happening today, people want experience. 
they're not too concerned about the witness of Scripture. And they've got this whole thing reversed. And that's why they're falling for so much error. How would you respond to the listener who says, Pastor Murphy, the Word of God is more powerful than what the prophets had in that time period because we have the entire revelation of God. So how is it fair that I have all of that and they didn't have as much revelation? Well, look, we're going to be held responsible for the truth that was revealed to us. God is not going to deal with you, uh, deal with the person in the past as though he has the fullness of revelation. That's why the Bible makes the degrees of punishment when God deals with us. Uh, It might be... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to put it this way. It might be better for some people that live in the Old Testament than to live in the New Testament days because mm-hmm. with all the light they've got and with all the rejection of the gospel, the severity of the God dealing with them is going to be far more than, than a person who didn't have this kind of knowledge. But God deals with us according to the amount of light that we have. And God will give everyone sufficient light who responds to the light that he's given. If you respond, if you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. And if a, per- God re- a person seeks God and God reveals something to him, light to him, and he keeps on, there's more light and more light and more light. That's a pledge that God has given to us. I can guarantee you one thing. When we stand before God and we give an account, you're going to see how fear God was. We may not understand it now, but we're going to see exactly how fear he was. And we will discover one thing as well, that God wants to reveal himself, and God was always in the shadows willing to reveal himself to us. And we will only turn around and, and say, without excuse, because we'll be under, we'll see our rebellion. I think, Nathan, we're going to look back, and if there's a videotape of our lives, of how many times God tried to reach out to us, how many different means he used to do that. But yet we, in our own rebellion, we will see that's not the fault with God. The fault is really with us, that God has used every means to get us into the kingdom, but we've rejected that. That's why the Bible says we will be, without what? Without excuse. Every man will be, is very bold today, but in that day, every mouth will be shut because the evidence will convince us uh, how righteous God was in dealing with us. If you have a question, you can send it via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. Maybe you're sitting in your vehicle and you're thinking, Brother Nathan, I'm not sure anyone else has that question or it would benefit anyone if I ask it. If you have the question that comes to your mind, there is benefit for all of us to hear Pastor answer it from a biblical worldview, from Scripture, so that we are better prepared. Not only do you get the answer, but we are all better prepared to be able to answer that question when a coworker asks us later this week or later this year. We have a WhatsApp message that has come in from the Southern Caribbean. And Pastor, this one's fairly lengthy, so I'll go through it and then we'll come back and break it down. Good night. In my daily devotions, I am reading the book of Acts, and my topic for discussion is the spirit of divination. In Acts 16, 16 through 18, we read of the young damsel possessed with the spirit of divination which was used for her master's gain. Yet in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14, it considers divination as an abomination unto God. Can Christians be possessed with this spirit and make and mistake it for discernment and prophecy? I have seen pastors foresee things about individuals in their service and rebuke spirits out. 
How is this different from prophecy? Divination seems like a tool from the devil to steer individuals away from God in the sense that they would always want to know more about future events. This defeats the purpose of not trusting God, but in man. There's an individual I know who can look at your picture and tell you certain things about yourself. Is this normal for this individual to do such? Pastor Murphy, can you please share some light on this matter, as I would really like to expand my knowledge and understanding. Thank you very much. Well, the first thing I would say very hurriedly and very quickly um, is that the reference in Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 18, with this young damsel who had a spirit of divination, this has nothing to do with a spiritual gift. This is an occult gift that is uh, some people have. Uh, it's like fortune-telling. Uh, this is not something from God. This is something that is demonic. Uh, so, so not to be desired. Not to be desired, and a Christian should not, uh, cannot mistake the spiritual dis- uh, discernment for this um, spiritual divination. Remember that this young lady followed the Apostle Paul saying, you know, this man is telling the truth. They are witnesses of the Most High God. And Paul listened to that for a few days, and then it wearied Paul's soul. And Paul said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. And the evil spirit came out. And remember that when the evil spirit came out, she lost the gift of divination, and therefore they put Paul on trial because they said, you know, <laughs> this man has really steal our, our, our livelihood. Mm-hmm. So clearly you're dealing with a demonic power that was possessing this girl that gave her this capacity to at least be able to tell the fortune. So this is not something that is desirable. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 18, maybe you can read that, Nathan, 9 to 14. Yeah, let me scroll up here. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. I think it's 14, yeah. All right. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt learn to do after the abomin thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations which thou shalt possess hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners, but as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so. So clearly, uh, a person who has this spirit of divination, capacity to uh, tell about the future, um, this is this is not a gift from God. He's condemning it uh, because it's an occult gift. Now that leads us to ask the question about the what about the spirit of discernment? Well, if you look at First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse ten. First Corinthians chapter twelve and verse ten says, "To another, the working of miracles; to another, prophecy; to another, discerning of spirits." to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. So clearly discernment is a gift of God. This is a spiritual gift. And this is where a person is given the faculty or the facility to distinguish between uh, a person who is uh, of God 
and when there is some evil spirit behind that person's ministry, there are some people who have that kind of discernment. They can they can listen to somebody and become very obvious. There's something not there. You just can't. Everybody doesn't have this gift. Right. But that is a gift that is given to some within the church, that they can decipher whether or not this is a genuine, authentic uh, preacher or this is a fake preacher that was that came in uh, that wanted to milk the, the, the people, basically. But that's a spiritual gift where a person can discern. Uh, she also asked the question about prophecy. How does this differ from prophecy? Well, look at uh, Corinthians chapter Oh, in that passage you see him read there in chapter, you see that the gift of prophecy as well is mentioned. See right. that? Yeah. Now, what's the gift of prophecy? Well, look at Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So clearly, the gift of prophecy um, is where God gives a direct message to someone that would lead to three things. The edification, that is the nurture or the building up of the individual. Exhortation, which has to do with encouraging the person, a word of encouragement. And the other one is comfort. We are trying to console a person who may be grieving. That's what the gift of prophecy is. It, it is to meet those three needs, edify, exhort, and comfort people. It's not about being able to tell, look at somebody and tell them the future. And uh, like, I'm very concerned that she, she mentioned here that she knows of somebody who can look at the picture of a person and tell them certain things about themselves. This is not a spiritual gift. Uh, it is an occult gift. And I would hazard a guess that if you were to trace the ancestry of this person, you will find that practice within that cycle the person, the grandfather, the great-grandfather, or grandmother, or mother, who have been involved in some kind of occult practice, and it has now been transferred to that person who has this kind of thing. But it is not a spiritual gift. Mm. It is something you should stay away from. Uh, that You don't find that kind of a gift uh, in Scripture. As a matter of fact, this person that you're talking about, uh, they need at some point in their life to renounce that gift and turn off, turn away from that gift. And uh, I would even say, if they've used it before, even repent of having used that gift. And um, But this is not something that you would want uh, a believer to be able to look at a picture and tell you things about. That is not of God, for, for very, very, very sure. Uh, if God has a message, He speaks through His Word, He will speak to the person, and that message will be sent uh, to you. But the idea of uh, being able to look at a picture, mm -mm, that is an occult practice and is something that you need to be aware of. And by the way, uh, she mentioned a pastor who uh, see things about individuals in their service and can rebuke the spirit. Again, what you see is not always real. You must always remember that. There's a lot of fakery going on within the, the church, and there are some uh, people who are doing this. Uh, it is not really the gift that they have, but even the person who, who hear the rebuke uh, goes along with it because they don't want to embarrass the pastor. So don't think because he seemed to be doing that, that there's something that's actually happening is real. There's a lot of fakery going on within the church today. Uh, let me suggest to you, stick with the Word. The only way to avoid deception is stick with the Word. And it doesn't matter what pastor there is, it doesn't matter what person in the church that there is, uh, if they're not following the Word and going according to the Word, it's because they are being deceived and there's no truth in that person. So you need to be very, very watchful uh, of, of this falsehood. It's all over the place. And the, the, the common commonest place today is within the church setting. I've seen on television a man blowing people down. 
I've seen a man without touching people cause people to fall backward. All of that is great acting. Sometimes it's demonic as well, but it's not of God. I guarantee you that's not of God. You don't find that anywhere in church history. You don't find it anywhere in the church. You don't even find it anywhere in the Bible. So you need to be aware that when you see these things happening, use the spirit of discernment. Is, is this in God's Word? Is this what God recommends? If not, it doesn't matter if it is me. It doesn't matter uh, what prominent person out there, what um, uh, Christian celebrity, or what superstar there is in, in some great mega church ministry. If they're not following the Scripture and the norms of Scripture, and by the way, it's also helpful to know a little bit about church history. Uh, to see if things like this happen in church history. If it hasn't happened, ask yourself one thing. Why in this final day of apostasy are you seeing these kind of demonstrations today? This is not the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit of deception. You know when you know the Spirit of God? When you see weeping and mourning and repentance, and you see people brokenness, that's when you will know the Spirit of God. But there's a lot of facade that we're having today. Now, you mentioned that if someone had that gift of being able to foretell the future and they had used it, they should renounce it, they should repent. What about the individual who has interacted with someone and said, hey, can you tell me the future? What would you advise? Generally speaking, if you read uh, Dr. Cox's book on uh, Cox and the Occult, I think it might be in CLC, or you can go online and get it. Uh, he always he advises that as long as you've benefited, like for example, if you've been to uh, here in the Caribbean, they call them Obey people. You've okay. been to witchcraft, or you've if you're in um, Haiti, you go to do voodoo. As long as some of that activity has done to your benefit, you have to renounce it. You have to renounce it. Uh, the devil always extract his pound of flesh. If he has done a favor for you, he's done something in your side, there's always consequence. There's psychological consequences. There are times when you can't pray any longer. You can't read your Bible any longer. You're going to deep times of depression because you benefit and now he's extracting what, um, um, you know, what, his pound of flesh, as it were. So once you're involved in any of these activities, whether it be your parents, by the way, there's some children that were very, very young that would, the parents took them to this obey man or that, whatever it is. As long as you become aware of that, the wise thing to do is to renounce that uh, because there is something called transference that goes from those people who practice to the person, and that's where you have this continuity. And there are people who have certain unique gifts today that, and I, I would suggest you, Nathan, if you trace the background and you could find out what the parents did of the grandparents, you will normally find there is some kind of occult activity that is transferred to the ancestor, to the individuals. You're listening to That's Truth. The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. Now, if you are in Antigua and you are looking for a good Bible teaching church, now we're not trying to pull you out of the church that you're in if it is Bible teaching and focus on the Word of God. But if you are looking for a church that is preaching the Word of God consistently, we invite you to join us for our Sunday morning service at Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace on Rowan Henry Street. On Sunday morning, we have Sunday school at 9 a.m. and the morning service at 10 a.m. And then on Thursday nights, we alternate between prayer and Bible study every other week. And those services start at 6.30 p.m. 
I want to share just a little bit about Pastor Murphy. I've, it's been quite a while since I've done this. If you've just tuned in and you're saying, well, this guy seems to know what he's talking about, but he, does he really have the credentials to be speaking? He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in English, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Theology, a Master's degree in Religion, a Doctorate degree in Counseling. He's been doing ongoing studies with the Blackford Counseling Center in England, constantly reading and studying. If you know Pastor Murphy, he's constantly absorbing new information. He's been married for over 40 years, and he was a public school teacher. If you're thinking, well, he's a pastor, he can't relate to me, you're wrong. He was a public school teacher for four years. He was in management for three years, marketing for four years, evangelism for two years, and he has ministered and pastored in St. Vincent, St. Lucia, and Antigua for over 30 years, and he has preached in many churches throughout the Caribbean. Pastor did not put me up to that. In fact, I'm sure he does not necessarily prefer me sharing all of that information, but I share that to let you know that this program is not just someone sitting there talking. It's based off of education on the Word of God. Pastor, did you have something you yeah, want to add? Yeah, I want to add something here. Um, the young ladies talked about the pastor having this capacity to see people and tell them things about themselves. And, you know, uh, don't be mesmerized uh, if you're going to a church where this person uh, pretends to have this kind of knowledge. Look, there's the way you judge a pastor, and it's very, very simple. There are two gifts a pastor must have. He must have the gift of teaching and the gift of preaching. That's how you measure whether or not he's a good pastor. Not that he can tell you that, you know, I see you went last week, what some place. That's, that's immaterial. Can he handle the word? Can he present the word to you? And can he teach the word? So I'm just saying that, that you know, a lot of these people who claim this prophetic gift and can tell you this, th- th- that's not what we, what really matters today is the word. Remember, our Lord made it very clear in Matthew chapter 24. The primary uh, problem that we're going to have in the end times is deception. Four different times he warns about deception. He said, if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. And Paul emphasized when he's dealing with Timothy and all the errors that were uh, he was dealing with, he said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Uh, and so I'm just saying to you as a person, don't be mesmerized by anybody who claimed to have the prophetic gift uh, as a pastor. Uh, use the judgment of, is, can he handle the word? Can he preach the word? Can he teach the word? That is how you know he has the gift uh, of, of the pastorate. So I'm just cautioning you not to be enamored with other things that are just um, peripheral issues. What advice do you have for the listener who says, Pastor Murphy, I'm the member of a church. It's a good church, but you just listed the criteria of what a pastor should do. He should be able to handle the word and teach and preach, and my pastor is not able to do that. What advice do you have? Well, I would say to anybody, if a pastor can't preach and he can't teach, he's not at called. That's my, I would make no apologies about that. The Bible sets forth the qualifications. Of course, there are other qualifications, family qualifications, but those are two things that are central uh, to a pastoral work. He must be able to handle and preach the Word. He must be able to teach. How can he feed the flock? If he can't teach, he can't preach. So if there's a pastor that uh, you, that's a part of your church and he, he doesn't have that capacity, I would suggest to you he's out of his calling. That's all I would suggest to you. You make a judgment on the matter, but that's, that's the biblical teaching. He must have those, those gifts because those are the gifts promised to a pastor. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.26. We've got about 34 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. So go ahead and send in your question via WhatsApp or text message to 268 782 one four five four. If you have sent in a question and we haven't gotten to it yet, I'm getting to them in the order that they come in. So please be patient and thank you for sending in your question. We have a, another question that has come in. Uh, I am reading this article about mourning. My question is, how is mourning different from fasting and praying? Can Christians achieve the same as spiritual Baptists if they fast and pray? How is it different from the gifts of the Spirit and fruits of the Spirit, which a believer in Jesus Christ attains? And there's a screenshot of the article. I'll just read through this quickly. It's not real long. Members of Spiritual Baptist Church in West Indies engage in a ceremony called mourning, which involves prayer, fasting, and experiencing of dreams and visions while in isolation. Twenty-three church members who had undergone the experience were interviewed. Mourners cited six benefits of the practice, relief of depression, of a depressed mood, attainment of the ability heightened facility to communicate with God and to meditate, a clearer appreciation for their racial origins, an identification with church hierarchy and physical cures. Mourning appears to be a viable psychotherapeutic practice for these church members. Pastor, what well, is the, your the first, My first response to that would be, is it scriptural? Do we have any basis in the Bible for the kind of practice that is going on. And basically what the spiritual spiritual Baptist movement, um, they are, to my knowledge, they believe the core principles that Christianity holds to the Trinity, Jesus Christ, um, water baptism by immersion, etc., etc. But they have blended African religion with the Baptist religion. In other words, a lot of what they do it's out of the African culture. Now, that's not say it's all bad, because right. what they do, they, they, if you see, you know, um, the spiritual Baptists, they do a lot of um, African dress, and I mean, I have no problem with those kind of things, right? Um, if you want to go back to your roots, that kind of thing, that's that's up to you. Uh, but uh, when it comes to this matter of mourning, what they do, they put you in a room. And um, they kind of deprive you of all uh, um, sensory things and and, uh, also when it comes to isolation. So that um, if one is blindfolded, uh, he doesn't get any food, any water. And sometimes you go from three days as long as 21 days. um, You lay down flat on the earth. And you use a stone as a pillar for your head. It's much like Jacob as it, w- as it was in the Old Testament. I don't know if it's a merging of that, whatever it is. But the whole idea is that you fast, you pray, you sing, you chant, and you meditate. And that is supposed to put you in a frame of mind where you uh, communicate with God. And the way that they communicate with God uh, is not is, is through dreams and um, um, visions. They depend on a lot of visions. They even talk about, they don't call it astral travel, but the idea is, is, is almost like having an out-of-body experience to connect with the spirit world, basically. Now, I, I, I worry about that. 
right? I worry about that because um, if you are deprived of um, nutrient uh, for so long, you can go into a state of hallucination. If you're depending on dreams and um, um, your imagination uh, to connect you with God, I have a problem with that as well. If I want to know God, God has given to me His Word, and through prayer to God and through the Word, that's how I communicate with God. So I do have a problem with this this method. And then again, is there any warrant in the Bible for a person lying down, uh, blindfolded in, in a room with a, a thing on, on their head? Is that normal practice within the New Testament church? you find that in church history. Absolutely not. I think it's a merging of Christianity and African way of thinking that has led to this, this kind of activities. Um, but again, it's supposed to enable you to communicate with God better, help you develop your soul, strengthen your spirit, and sometimes they tell you achieve greater knowledge and wisdom when you go through this whole process. And also you're supposed to receive spiritual gifts, by the way, uh, when you go through this process. Uh, the question that the person asks, what's the difference between this and fasting and uh, prayer, is it? Yeah, fasting yeah. and prayer. Uh, again, if we would do more fasting and more prayer, not to be seen of men, personally, I do feel that it would enable us to have a greater level of connectivity with God, a greater level of spirituality. There's no doubt about that. I think our body overrides our spirituality, and we're not prepared to pay any price uh, in terms of deprivation to have an intimate encounter with God by spending some day- time with the Lord. But again, that is something very, very, very private. And I do feel that um, if we were to spend time, more time with God in prayer and fasting, I do believe that we'll become more spiritual. I do believe we have more clarity of mind, etc., etc. And I do believe that you will have some of the benefits where um, you don't have all the anxiety and the depression because you've gone into God's presence and it puts you at peace and in rest. So there are psychological and, and physical um, benefits to it. But that's not the reason why you do it. You're ready to connect with the Lord to find out His will, um, to understand better His counsel, etc., etc. But um, So there's, there is a difference, but I think that what they do, the church can very well benefit from spending some more time in prayer and also time of isolation in um, in fasting. When I was at Bible school, there was a one or two guys in Bible school that always uh, would do fasting. I never was part of it, to be very honest with you, but these were very, very deep spiritual guys that would uh, sometimes go a week, even though they're doing all their studies, but there was their prayer and their fasting. And uh, I think there was a difference in those guys' lives and the other guys, and that became very obvious because it was a, it was as part of their spiritual discipline, right? And uh, we don't have much of that today. But I do feel that we could benefit greatly from more time and more fasting, but that's an individual thing that needs to be made, and it doesn't need to be broadcasted. Because the moment we broadcast it, according to Matthew chapter 5, we've lost a reward. Right. When you fast, he said, wash your face, and uh, don't even let your right hand know what your right hand is doing, and between you and God. That is what we need. Secret, private uh, relation with God, uh, and it, we don't have to tell people uh, it sometimes will be felt by the mere presence of the Lord in our lives. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I hope that your week is going well, but no matter whether it has been the best week of your life or the worst week of your life, we are here to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. 
You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 or go on Facebook, go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed and then right there in the comment section while you're watching the program behind the scenes and listening to the program, you can comment your question to us live and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner, live on the air. We've got about 25 minutes left in the program. Let me just do a quick station ID, and then we're going to move on. 11.60 a.m., 92.3 FM, and also online at radiolighthouse.org. And again, for this program on Tuesday nights, you can also join us on Facebook Live. We also rebroadcast this program on Saturday evening and also put it on or Saturday afternoon and also put it online as a podcast. So if you are joining us after the fact in the rebroadcast or the podcast, maybe it's even five years from now. Welcome to That's Truth, and we are honored that you are taking part in the program. Go ahead and send in your question via WhatsApp or text message. Pastor, we have Codrington on the air. Please go ahead quickly with your question. Oh, yes. Um, I had a quick question, but me sitting at the board, allow me to ask that question. But I have another one, basically, we get another one to ask. When Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, and he said, Mother, because he knows his mother is only. He said, Mother, behold your son. And then he said again, Son, behold your mother. And the son where he was talking about now, when she, when the son became her mother now, the son was not her real mother as fleshly mother. So I just wanted to explain that to me. Well, in, in that particular incident, um, this is where Christ is hanging the cross. Mary is nearby. And Christ commit, commits his mother into the care of John, the Apostle John. He's the one that was only the one that was there, the guy that um, the Bible talks about. So what he's doing now, I mean, here he's crucified. He has certain obligations to his mom. He's not going to be there because he's going to be, he's, he's going to be in the grave, and then he's going to be resurrected. And what he does, basically, is entrust his mother to the care of John so that John will take care of his mother. So he's, this just shows you that uh, even in his suffering, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his others. And uh, you can very well imagine that uh, the importance of having somebody to take care of your mom. So that is interesting Mary to the care of John. So when he says, Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, he's referring to John who was there at the cross with Mary, and he's saying, listen, you know, take care of, your, take care of my mom, and um, mom, here's your son, he'll take care of you, basically. So it's actually to perform uh, the, the filial duties of a, a person to, uh, to our Lord's mother. I trust that that answered your question, Codrington. Not clearly, because he said, she said, he said, son, take care of your mother. Uh-huh. You don't say, you know, so you know, answer it right. He said, son, take care of your mother. So she became his mother now. Not all the way with, um, you have to take care of her because it's just this biblically, you would need somebody to take care of her. He said, son, take care yeah, but the, the, the point there, Codrington, is that he is now, uh, he's leaving this earth, he has nobody to take care of his mother, and he's now entrusting her to his care. 
um, that is, I mean, that's the most obvious interpretation there. If you're coming from a Catholic point of view where Mary is supposed to be almost a demigod, uh, you think that she's supposed to take care of John now. But that's not what he's teaching, basically. John is taking care of her, not she taking care of John. That, that's what the whole thing is about. And that's where you get, you get you're coming from a presupposition of a Catholic faith. And you're coloring the interpretation through the lenses of the Catholic Church, rather than take the literal meaning of the of the Scripture in that particular case. But he's taking care of her uh, because our Lord is absent, and that's that's what that passage is about. So don't read too much into it, other than what it is there. Thank you very much for your call, Codrington. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse, and keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and not on Mary. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.39. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that's coming from Antigua. Good night, all. Thank you for this program. Pastor Murphy, can you please share how we, or believers, should tackle the lies behind missionary dating and missionary relationships? I've been hearing it very often and want to know how we would, how you would advise people with this incorrect mindset towards salvation and personal relationships. Well, I am not too sure I understand the language of the, the text. Um, maybe you can interpret for me, uh, Nathan. I'm assuming it means like I'm dating a girl and she's not saved, and so I'm going to be a witness to her, oh. I, oh. Is, is my guess. If that's what the person means, I mean, that is clearly unscriptural. Um, dating was not intended to be missionary work. Uh, <laughs> no Christian should date a non-Christian. Um, no exceptions. No exceptions. I mean, well, let me just put it this way. I mean, if you have a, you got a youth group and you're going to have a banquet and everybody must have a, I'm talking about no serious dating, right. casual, yeah, right? Yeah. But in terms of looking for a partner in life, uh, an unsafe person is out of the picture altogether. We must marry in the Lord. Uh, we must not uh, be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So the idea that you make dating a um, a missionary adventure where you try to convert the person and then finally marry them. As a matter of fact, if I was an unsafe person and uh, a Christian wanted to date me and I was thinking she was married, I would wonder what kind of Christianity he's got because my knowledge of the Bible makes it very clear that a believer should not intermarry with a heathen. So I'd be very, very surprised that he would would uh, would want to propose that. There's nothing wrong if you have an interest in a person. You don't have to state the interest, and there's nothing wrong in trying to convert a person. But the idea to have a relationship that could lead to marriage uh, while you're a Christian and that person is a non-Christian, there's no biblical support for that, and it, it can't be found anywhere in Scripture. Um, I think it's a tragedy that you would uh, a person would, would go in that direction. Look, there's a lot of foolishness going on in the, in the Christian world, a lot of nonsense going on in the Christian world. We need to wise up to these things. Just go to Scripture. You know, you've heard me say that this program very often. I keep repeating it. Truth simplifies life. And once you know the truth, it makes everything so simple. You don't have to go into any deep arguments with people, etc., etc., and so on and so forth. Uh, so just get to know the Bible, follow the Bible, obey the Bible, live by the Bible, and anything that's contrary to the Bible, just realize it's false. It's not true. Uh, this is where you must develop a firm confidence in the Word of God. That is what is needed today, a firm confidence in the Word of God. But um, Christians are following for almost every every everything the culture begins to push and the 
so-called uh, intellectuals begin to push and the psychologists begin to push and those people who are in political uh, power begin to push. Somehow the, ch- the Christian uh, seem to count out of these kind of uh, practices and beliefs and and uh, just go contrary to Scripture. That's not me, and I hope that um, it's not you as well. Thank you very much for your question that you sent in. And if by chance we misinterpreted what you were asking, please give a follow-up explanation, and we'll be glad to further expound on it. It's a new term for me. Uh, while you were talking, I did a quick Google search, and that seems to be the concept. Uh, okay. Is personal but, one But I'm just kind of curious, Nathan, who will be pushing that? I mean... I, I'm not sure. Google defined it as a person of one faith trying to win someone of another faith through yeah. a dating relationship. Yeah. Now, I would say this, though. I don't find anything wrong in, um, for example, um, the connectivity between Christians and other Christians in different parts of the world, etc. Uh, I tell people, if you're looking for a life partner, and, you know, in many cases, the pool of the, the individual church that the person is going is so small, you need to broaden that pool. And uh, that's the way where you could have conferences and get to meet other believers and go to different conferences overseas to get to meet people. If you're looking for a life partner, it's not going to drop down from heaven somewhere and just fall into your lap. Uh, You've got to use some, some wisdom and, and uh, allow the Lord to, you know, it's like the, the people who are building the, the, um, the, rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the tabernacle, they were using a shovel, and they also had a sword. Yeah. So, I mean, God can lead, but you've got to use your common sense as well. Though. You just can't think that there's just going to, it's like you want a job. So you just keep praying for a job. Somehow the job is going to come, and don't slap some tar and write some letters. You wait. You might wait for eternity if you don't try and find something. <laughs> no, you're responsible, and you've got to use your common sense when it comes to these matters. What advice do you have, or what would the Bible advice be for an individual who you start a relationship with someone, neither of you are believers, and then you become a Christian? And the relationship is serious, and you are truly in love both ways. What advice do you have? Well, again, I would wait until that person is converted. If I if I if I think this is the person for me, but I'm not going into the marriage in that with that person on safe state. Uh, if that person is for me, certainly you do some praying. Lord, you know, I, I'm in love. She's in love. Whatever they think is the right person, but I think it'd be a gross mistake. Uh, that in that moment of uh, passion and that moment of love, because you uh, love the person so much, you say, you know, let's get married. The person is not saved. Uh, look, that might seem harsh, it might seem difficult, but again, the supreme authority of the Scripture is what overrides your feelings and your emotions. A believer marries a believer. A believer is never right for a believer to marry an unsaved person. It doesn't matter who they are. Uh, you, if you think that's a person for you, wait. And if that person gets converted, yes. But if they don't get converted, you're still going against the biblical principle by uh, marrying that person. That might my, my su- suggestion we wait in prayer, uh, if that's the case. But uh, never proceed with the marriage simply because um, you have these romantic feelings, etc., etc. It's always wrong to disobey God's word. I repeat, it's always wrong to this. Even though there may be some short-term benefits, there will be some long-term consequences. 
Now, you've done a lot of premarital counseling. You've done a lot of marriage counseling, attempting to reconcile couples and save the marriages. Is there a way to verify that someone has had a true conversion and that they haven't just become a believer in order to marry an individual? Well, I, I would I would hope that when the persons are dating that they keep their discerning uh, cap on. And there are things that you can talk about. Are they interested in spiritual things? Do they go to church? Are they active in the church, et cetera, et cetera? Do they have a prayer life? Do they read their Bible? I think all of these are indications as to whether or not this person is genuine and authentic. And then there's nothing wrong in asking the person, can you share your testimony? How did you get saved? I would hope that during the process, if you're dating, that that's a question that would come up at some point in time. And I think that depending on the person, what they say, I mean, um, if you are a Christian who knows the Bible, uh, there will be some red flags and uh, there may be some green flags. But I think depending on what they tell you and how they became convicted and uh, how they became converted, I think that you would uh, be able to pick up somewhere along the line whether or not this is a genuine, authentic case we're dealing with or this is a person who just generalized Christianity and really wants a partner and marriage, but it's clearly there's no real heart, there's no spirit, there's no depth to the person. It doesn't take you long, uh, Nathan, I think, to understand if the person has depth as far as the Christian faith is concerned and really understand biblical truths. I mean, very, very simple things uh, the person would say that would make you aware. So uh, that would be my, my counsel, um, that if you're not too sure of the person, deliberately um, think about it. What kind of questions would I need to ask the person? And you don't have to interrogate them. Uh, so, you know, But you, you should, on one day, I'm going to focus on this. I want to find out, you know, uh, what were the steps that, that led you to the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, after you got saved, again, you don't do it at the same time, but it's almost like a follow-through because if you're really, really not sure that there's some doubt, there's something that you've seen in the person that leads you to believe that maybe this person is not really authentic. So you're going to have to try to, without trying to seem as though you're a detective, uh, which you're supposed to be by your fruits, you should know them. Yeah. But at the same time... Um, over a period of time, ask certain questions that you're concerned about to see if you can discern how they answer. And generally speaking, from how people answer those kind of questions, you can pick up, become sensitive whether or not this is a real, genuine case or this is just a, a bogus case, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Thank you for your questions that you have been sending in. We've got about 10 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. We're going to jump in to the material where Pastor left off last week, talking about uh, continuing the series on apostasy and the uh, many of the mainline denominations that have fallen away from the true gospel. Pastor, any quick comments before you jump back to the church that you were discussing? Look, I just um, would like to make this the final stage of dealing with this particular topic. Uh, because we've spent so much time on it. Uh, my main concern, Nathan, is the fact that uh, the World Council of Churches, which represent 340 denominations in 120 countries and speak for over 500 million Christians, is that they are so steep in apostasy that I, I, I can't fathom how churches can belong to this organization. Uh, it is an eclectic religious movement that is trying to bring Muslims... Um, Aborigines, 
American Indians, um, Hindus, um, nature worshipers. The whole idea is that we want to, uh, to bring up all these groups together under the umbrella of spiritual unity. And the things that are happening at these meetings when they have these conferences, it's mind-boggling. How can people who are said to be Christians, 50 million of them, uh, representing 100 and, uh, 340 denominations, how can those denominations stay within uh, this particular... That's what bothers me greatly. And what I wanted to... What I've been doing is giving you some quotations of these conferences that they've had and who they've had at these conferences and what these people uh, has been saying. Um, I don't remember exactly where I, I dropped off last time, but I'd just like to um, mention some others this evening. This is a seminar that they was had at the World Conference of Churches, and there was a lady there called Mary Hunt. Uh, she had a seminar, and the seminar was Reimagining Sexuality in the Family. Now, this woman's a lesbian theologian, and um, this is what she said. And I quote, this was um, February 1994. Uh, Imagine sex among friends as the norm. Imagining we living sexual interactions in terms of whether and how it fosters friendship and pleasure. Pleasure is our birthright of which we have been robbed by religious patriarchy. Uh, patriarchy. Now, imagine you're given a... There's a conference. Yeah. You've got all these, these Christians supposed to be there, and basically you're saying we should have as much pleasure as we want. And what's wrong with me having sex with a friend? What's wrong with me... Uh, uh, like the Romans and the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what I'm saying to you. I can't, I'm trying to figure out how this can be the World Council of Churches with this kind of advocate. And this woman is a lesbian, theologian. Mm. How can she be given a forum? to speak on these kind of subjects. That's why I say that it's time for churches to understand what is happening and come out of these corrupt organizations. Um, at the, another conference, they uh, had what is called Worshipping um, um, Sophia. I think I might have mentioned that before. But at this particular conference, they are praying uh, to Sophia. And listen to their prayer. Our maker, Sophia... We are women in your image, Sophia's creator God. Uh, shower us with your love. We invite a lover. We birth a child with our warm body fluids. We remind the world of its pleasures and its sensations. Our guide, Sophia, we are women in your image uh, with the honey of wisdom in our, in our mouth. We prophesy a full humanity to all people. Now, this is a prayer directed to this God, Sophia at a world conference of churches. How can anybody sit there and embrace this kind of uh, paganism that is going on in, in, in the moment? So we're talking about, um, and by the way, at that same conference, they had an image of Sophia. This is the description of the, uh, that they had. She was a bald, frowning woman with long, naked breasts. She had in the middle of her forehead a tikka. You know, these uh, Indians got a, a kind of a mark in the, in the center of it. And the same mark, by the way, that the women in the pagan temples in like Nepal, going to worship their false gods, carry the same mark. Uh, this is the image of Sophia that they were praying to there at that particular conference. If this isn't apostasy as a height, I don't know uh, what is or what we can add to this. 
I'm going to interrupt you just sure. a minute. We've got two questions that have come sure. in. Pastor, could you explain the Passover and is keeping the Passover an assurance of salvation or inheriting eternal life? Passover? Uh, we have no biblical warrant for keeping the Passover today, so I'm not too sure why that person asked that question. The Passover was a type of Christ. The Lord's communion has replaced the Passover. Okay. Right? Um, the same function. In the Passover, remember, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, uh, the Lamb that was slain, it had to be perfect, had to be male, it could not be broken. This is a type. That's why in the book of Corinthians it said, Christ our Passover has been crucified. So there's no need for us to observe the Passover today. What has happened today, Nathan, is that Jews have come into Christianity and now want to bring the Gentile world back onto the same traditions of the the Jewish practices. And there's no warrant for that. Uh, That's why they're bringing back days, observing certain Jewish days. That's That's not for biblical Christianity. If the Jews want to do that, that's their business, but that doesn't belong to the, 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 the Gentile church. That is very clear. Colossians make that very clear. The book of Galatians make that very clear. So there's no need for us to celebrate the Passover. As a matter of fact, I don't know what Christian celebrates the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, of which the Passover is tight, because the Passover, was, uh, the, the Lord's Supper is a covenant. The new covenant started with the, our Lord's death, which is the type of the Passover. So I am a little bit puzzled that anybody would ask that question. Nobody has security because they observe the Passover. You have support security because you have your faith and trust in Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit who is a down payment. But there's nothing to do with the Passover relative to security. And another question that's come in, what does the Bible mean by your sons pass through the fire that is mentioned a lot in the Old Testament? Well, again, the, the God Moloch, was an image of a god who had his arms folded. And the, the way that the uh, pagans sacrificed the Moloch, the fire was in the center and the open arms. And as a sacrifice, they would take their uh, children who were alive and lower down into the fire as an offering to Moloch. So that's why God condemns in the Old Testament the offering um, of the children in the fire. Uh, it's an abomination to sacrifice your child to these idols. But it is mentioned in the book of Kings as well that when Israel went away from God and fell into apostasy and came under uh, paganism, that they themselves were now taking their own children and sacrificing the children to Moloch by putting him in the fire through the arms of that particular idol. So that's what it means. You, you, uh, pass, letting your children pass through the fire is sacrificing the, the, the newborn kids to Moloch by putting him in his arms that were a light below a fire. Thank you to the individuals who sent in your questions throughout the program tonight. In the last two minutes, what are your uh, thoughts on this topic of apostasy, Pastor? Well, I just like to. I wish. I. I just wish that people would um, wake up and understand what is happening. Um, you know, a lot of these TV evangelists as well. Uh, you take um, this guy, um, Joel Osteen. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about it. He is gone. He's apostate. No question about that. Uh, T.D. Jakes, uh, very popular, very good speaker. But he also is apostate in a lot of his teachings as well. But I find that people gravitate towards people who has the, the gift of gab. And I think because of their personality, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing I'm very concerned about is a lot of these people are writing backs on celebrities. Uh, they're having 
people like um, Oprah. Oprah is a lost woman. Oprah is not a safe person. Uh, she claims to be a Christian, but she is not really a Christian, to be very honest with you. But she's popular, and uh, again, within the Caribbean, because she's black, and because some of these people are black, that seemed to, to uh, trump everything else. And I don't think people are discerning on these matters as they should. Look, whether a person be pink, blue, or black, it doesn't matter. What matters is the Scripture and the taking a stand on, on, on the Scripture. And we must not be misled and become colorblind to people who are in error in these matters. We must speak out against these things because it's contrary to God's Word. What should be our basis of determining what is true and what is not in these end times? As we've pointed out several times on this broadcast, Nathan, the, the final authority is God's Word. If a person does not agree with God's Word or go contrary to God's Word or twist God's Word, they're in error and not to be rejected. And you really believe in the last 30 seconds that God's Word still applies today as much as it did 2,000 years ago? Absolutely. And by the way, if we don't have a final authority, it means we are left in limbo. And we have no answers to the world's problems. But with certainty, we can provide answers because it is an infallible book and it is God's Word. So some of the churches that don't have answers to the world's problems is because they have left the Word of God? Is that what I understand? That's exactly where we are today. We've drifted away from the truth and therefore we are confused. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.